As we start First uh, John, um, I'm excited about this, and, and, and just a little background as we get going here in First John, uh, most scholars believe that it was written by the by the disciple John, uh, the, the son of Zebedee that uh, we read about, um, who wrote the, the Gospel of John, and uh, these, these as well, the, the letters of John and Revelation. Uh, they believe that roughly the dating for this, and of course there's always thought on this, but roughly AD 85 to 95, it's, it's kind of a latter part of the, the first uh, century kind of a text here. It was likely written in Ephesus. Uh, and, and the letter is just an interesting letter. It's very circular in, in kind of how it's uh, put together. Uh, John doesn't waste any time with like fancy intros or welcomes or any of that kind of stuff. He just kind of runs straight into uh, this message that he has. It's kind of written almost more as a, as a sermon than a kind of a, uh, the, the, the typical fashion of the letters which start, you know, uh, you know, greetings to the saints and blah, 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 or whatever. Uh, it doesn't start like that. He just kind of just runs straight headlong into uh, this. And, and John tends to, to make a point, leave that point, and circle back around and hit that point again. It kind of seems to be very much kind of the pattern of this letter. Uh, and, and in this letter, there's obviously some things that are creeping into the church. There's some teaching that has crept into the church that isn't, uh, or it, it's not up to snuff. And, and John is calling this teaching out. And, and it's super important, I think, as we read the letter of 1 John to understand kind of some things that are creeping into the church and why he's hitting the things he's hitting and why he's going back and just kind of nailing these, these points uh, time and time again. There's a, there, there's, there's a teaching that, that crept into the church and really took root in the second century, and it's called a Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is, is this idea that all matter is bad and that just the spirit is good. Uh, Gnostics would believe uh, that, that really kind of what you do in the flesh doesn't even really matter because it's all just about the spirit and the spiritual. They believe that everybody kind of has like a divine spark within them. And really what's important is, what, what, what's important or not important isn't like things like sin, uh, but this gnosis, Gnostic teaching gnosis or, or this special knowledge kind of a thing. They, they, they really, uh, they, they had this idea that, that what was really important was to get a hold of this mystical knowledge of God where you kind of had this thing and it lit this spark and the divine that was within you now was, was able to be um, kind of experienced and, and, and put out. Uh. So they didn't believe that really that God created the world. They, they believed that, that the world, because the world was evil and there was evil in the world, they, they believed that, that God didn't create the world. They believed that kind of a demigod, uh, an evil demigod would have created the world and, and that they believed that God would have nothing to do with the material world. So things like the incarnation and the resurrection are basically impossible from a Gnostic point of view. Um, and so they, they think that sin is irrelevant, that only Gnosis, the, this idea of, of understanding or this, this secret knowledge matters. Uh, and, and so while that really didn't take hold in a big way in the church until roughly scholars say about the second century, 
we know that there are things that are taking hold that are, that are teachings that are leading that way and stuff. And I, I believe personally, by the way, that John approaches this letter, it's very obvious the things that he is kind of dealing with and coming back around to are, are the early things of, of this Gnostic teaching that is going on. Uh, there's a thing called docetism. And, and, and it's, it's the, basically, it denies the incarnation and the resurrection because God could not ever touch corrupted matter. So, so there's also, there's uh, this guy named uh, Serinthus, and there's Serinthianism, which is this idea that, uh, that, that the Christ, or there's, there's the spirit of Christ, and that the spirit of Christ came upon Jesus as just a regular human, that the Spirit of Christ came upon him at his baptism and left him at his crucifixion. And, and I think that that has crept into all kinds of uh, different uh, beliefs and theologies and things like that. I mean, even with, uh, even with Islam, Islam, while they recognize Jesus as being a prophet and a man, uh, Islam believes that when he was put on the cross that he was actually substituted with Judas Iscariot, and, and, and he didn't actually experience the crucifixion. So there's, there's all kinds of ways in which these different uh, theologies and ideas have crept in and crept into uh, the church. There's a thing called antinomianism, which means anti is against and nom is the law. It, it's, it's just against the law. It, it, it believes that, that really that the, that the law is totally irrelevant and therefore that really sin also is irrelevant. And what really only matters, again, is just this special knowledge. that it kind of all really goes back around to this, which ultimately brings us back to the, the, the commonality of most uh, belief systems apart from Christianity, which is somehow you become your Savior. Somehow you are the one who is able to do this somehow. If you could just get this secret knowledge, or you just can understand this, or you can just transcend the material and go into the spiritual somehow. Buddhism is this way, right? Buddhism is a work. Buddhism is the idea that, that uh, nirvana means to, it, it means to basically extinguish the flame of desire. So, so Buddhism believes that all desires are, are inherently evil and that the way to overcome this world of suffering and to escape it and kind of to blend in with the cosmos, if you will, is to basically extinguish your all desires so that you become a person who is just desireless. And I've got to uh, go and spend some time like in Asia and you see in these places where these monks are at these Buddhist monks, and they literally spend eight to ten hours a day staring at blank walls and stuff, trying to purge themselves of any kind of de desire so that they can reach nirvana. They do all kinds of works and things. It's, it's, it's actually crippling. They, they walk backwards, uh, counterclockwise around these different stupas, uh, spinning these prayer bell things, these wheels, uh, believing that that will reduce the amount of incarnations that they have to experience before they can reach nirvana. It, it becomes this pressing work kind of a thing. Islam, you know, you're, you're, you're praying just these you know, these three times a day and the, the, the pilgrimages to Mecca and all, all of these different works that a person has to do. And if you're in Islam, if you believe uh, in Islam, at the end of the day, you see, there's no guarantee for you that you'll reach heaven, that, that Allah himself is very capricious. And so, so you could do all of the tenets of Islam, and when you stand face to face with, with Allah, he, he may or may not let you into heaven, you don't know. Unless there's one, there is one 
clause that's given in the Quran for a person to have some security, eternal security in Islam, and that's to die in jihad. So if you die in jihad, you're guaranteed heaven. And, and, and so this is why, because this belief, belief affects our actions and what we do. This is why people in Islam, uh, you know, uh, especially more, you know, definitely the, the, the more uh, radical Islamists, uh, not all people that practice Islam are, are violent, but, but the radical Islam people, they, they, they'll go blow themselves up in buses and tra- in trains and things like that because they believe that that is their only guarantee into heaven, and it is according to the Quran. So, um, anyway, this is just radical. This idea of G- of God becoming a man and entering into time and space and history to serve His creation is there. There's just nothing else that's like it. See, see the gods, and especially back in here, we have this pantheon of gods and things like that. Is is God never would come to serve people? He would never come to serve His creation. I mean, this is a radical departure from what people. Thought, this idea that God would actually come and He would serve His creation. Nothing like it. There's the other thing that really sets Christianity apart and Christian belief apart is this. It's grace. It's grace. It's that you can't work for it. You can't earn it. You, you, you can't do enough good things. You can't help enough old ladies across the street to balance this thing out. And, and the reason, too, is that, see, your good works are never at issue. It's our sin that's issue. And because we all have sin, there's only one way in. There's only one, and that's, that's grace. That's that we would receive God's favor even though we really don't deserve it. And this is the place, and through His grace, His mercy is initiated. And then we don't get what we deserve, which is, that's mercy. Grace is receiving His favor even though we don't deserve it. Mercy is not receiving what we actually deserve. And so, so just this background, uh, we just need to know. See, John, when he saw this guy, Serenthus, who was teaching this stuff, there's a story that says that he saw him at this bathhouse, and he was like, had some disciples with him. He was like, let's get out of this bathhouse before the whole thing falls down, because I just saw Serenthus is in here, you know, and God might just bring this whole thing down on everybody, which kind of tells you where John is at. So in First John, John is obviously combating and he's fighting against a false teaching that is rearing its head and that's coming into the churches. Now, note to self for us in churches, right? Brings us back to this, right? We now, and understand too that back then, they didn't have the New Testament to go by. So, so John and, and these guys, as they write these epistles and these pastoral letters and different things, Paul and Peter and John and you know, everybody who's, who's kind of participating in this, Luke, is, and they're, they're, they're helping to form the church and shape the church, and they're setting out guidelines and, and, and theology and parameters for how the church is to operate and what it's to look like. So for us, we have that right? And, and, and this is the thing. My promise to you is that we do not depart from this. What this says, it goes. Whether we're comfortable with it, whether we like it, whether it, however it challenges us, this is my authority. I do not stand here as the authority. This is the authority. And when I speak here in the front of the church, I do my best to speak out of what I believe this teaches. And again, I invite you, I tell you, you're completely welcome. If I ever say anything up here that is contradictory to Scripture, I invite you to come and bring Scripture and show me where I'm wrong. Don't just come and tell me what you think. You got to bring Scripture. 
But because this is my authority, honestly, if you show me in Scripture where something I teach is incorrect, I will change what I teach. Why? Because I'm not the authority. This is my authority. I'm a guy who could get something wrong at some point, okay? So my invitation is always, this is the authority, and it's the authority for all of us. And if I get something wrong, please come. Please come and show me, and we'll talk about that and stuff. This is, what, this is how iron sharpens iron. Again, I don't stand here as the guy who knows it all or who has it all figured out. I'm on my journey. I'm learning. I'm growing. God is teaching me as we go through all of these things. So anyway, let's do it here. Let's get into some First John. All right. So for chapter one, it's pretty short. So we're going to be able to, to just navigate this chapter here this morning. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. So, again, John just dives straight into this. And he starts by saying this. He says, that which was from the beginning. Now, this is a statement right there of the eternality of Jesus, that Jesus has always existed. Now, again, remember that, that a lot of this teaching is this idea that Jesus is just a human, and John is going back and reminding everybody and, and, and kind of saying this thing that, 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 no, Jesus isn't just a human. Jesus is human, but the, the nature of Jesus is that Jesus is a divine. He's God. And he's lived and existed for all eternity past. He has no beginning. He has no end. But he has added humanity to himself, to his divinity, as he's come to pay the penalty for sin and and set the human race free. So John, in John 1, 1 through 4, he deals with this, right? He's talking about this. John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember, he's saying this, and, and, and when John is using this, this, this way of speaking, when he calls Jesus the Word, He's taking John 1.1, and he's taking it back to Genesis 1.1, which is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Yahweh, God, created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? Well, it says that, it says that he spoke, right? And that word created all things. Now, now, the cults, again, will take, and they'll generally take Jesus, and they'll take his... Uh, his existence, and they will say, well, he was the firstborn of creation. And, and so they'll say that, that Jesus was created by God first, and then through him all things were created after that. But that's, but that's, that's not biblical. As a matter of fact, right here in, in John, uh, that which was made manifest, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. 
I needed to back up here. The life was made manifest to us. We have seen it. We testify to it. Uh, that which was with the Father, which was with the Father, that was eternal. Um, this, is the, this is who Jesus is, is that he doesn't have a beginning. He has a beginning for us in his incarnation, but he doesn't have a beginning. You see, and this word logos, this word, the word, word for the Greeks, it meant the implicit reason for the, the creation of the universe. It, it, it meant that it gave order to the cosmos and it gave form to the cosmos. It, it was this word, this logos word had huge meaning uh, within the Greek culture there. It says that he was manifest, that he appeared, that he declared, that he rendered apparent the nature and the character of who God is. And so now when we see Jesus, we see the nature and the character, we see who God is. And we see with a God who, when we would see him in the Old Testament, we would die. Now we see God in this form as a human being, and we begin to understand it's relatable. Now Jesus becomes and God becomes much more relatable to us. You see, it's plain here in John 1, it says that, that nothing was made apart from Him. Nothing. Colossians says the same thing, that all things were made for Him, by Him, and through Him. And, and it says that right here, it says, not anything that was made was made apart from Him. And so he couldn't be the first created. As a matter of fact, whenever we get into that, the, the word uh, that is used, the Greek word, when it talks about him being the firstborn is, is prototokos in the Greek. And it means, it has the idea of priority and sovereignty. It, when it says that he's the firstborn, it means that he is the one who is going to inherit all of it. It means he has authority and sovereignty over the thing. You see, there's another word that means first created, and that's prototostis, something like that, prototost. That's about how good my Greek is, okay? So that means the first created, and it is never, ever, ever used of Jesus. The other prototokos is used of him, but that has the idea of sovereignty, authority, and priority over all these things. You see, when we look, we see all of these times where the, where the Old Testament begins to show us the eternality of Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, Ephrathah, you are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Um. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus himself, in his own words, John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus, uh, John, is pointing out and, and drawing people into this idea that Jesus is God, that Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And, and, but, but also showing us, too, the reality of his physicality, that Jesus, God, became a man. 
And, and not just some kind of a phantom or some kind of a, a ghost man or something because that was kind of a Gnostic thought there. See, John goes to really point this out. He says, look, we've heard him. We've seen him with our eyes. We've looked at him. We've touched him with our hands concerning what? The word of life. The logos of Zoe, this word who brings life, right? Who brings life? Who is the author of life? It's God. And that this life was made manifest. It became visible to us. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life. We proclaim to you that Jesus has eternal life and he is the source of that eternal life. Ultimately, here's what John is saying, which was with the Father, was with him, and was made manifest now to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy might be complete, so that you might have right theology, so you might understand these things rightly. You see, there are times where we see Jesus show up prior to His incarnation. In the, and He shows up in the Old Testament at different times. Many times he shows up not as just a, an, an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. Genesis 16 is a place where, where we see this kind of, a, we would call this a Christophany or a theophany, this, this picture where we see God brought into being or, or, or seen in, in a human or an angelic kind of a form. So the angel of the Lord found her. This is, uh, this is about... Um, uh, somebody in the Old Testament. Uh, my brain just, it was, it was uh, Hagar, sorry. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So this angel of the Lord here does something. Uh, he, he, he basically says, look, I'm going to multiply. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going I'm to increase this son that you have. Uh, and she responds to him by saying, you are El Roi. You are the God of seeing. You are the God who sees. Her, her response to him isn't just that of an angel. We see different places in the Bible where angels are, people fall down and they begin to worship and the angel is like, no, 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 do not worship me. I am not, I, I'm not the one. But there are these times where we see worship is given and titles are given to this angel that are, that are a reflection really of, of deity. Now, this is a really interesting thing too. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but just so you know, that this is where the, the, the conflict in the Mideast basically begins. It's been going for thousands and thousands of years. You see, the Arab people trace their roots back to Ishmael, not to Isaac. 
And geneticists know that there's a common link between the Jewish people and the Arab people. It's Abraham. And, and, and so this whole thing, and listen to this, this prophetic thing, uh, that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand forever against everyone, and everyone's hand ever against him, and he shall dwell over all of his kinsmen. It's this idea of, of just that there will be conflict in the Middle East. And unfortunately, um, I think until Jesus comes and settles that conflict, there's probably going to be conflict in the, in the Middle East. Um, his name is Ishmael. Now, here's an interesting thing. Now, I struggled with this for a long time because I thought, it says he's going to make a, a, a nation, a mighty nation of Ishmael. And, and I'm like, golly. Uh, and, and I was like, um, and I was like, wow. Some translations say, I will make a great nation. And I thought, man, God, how is it that you would say that kind of Islam, because Islam traces its roots back to Ishmael, you would say that, Is, Ish, that Islam is a, is a great nation. But I'll tell you something that's very interesting that's happening right now. Do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is right now? They think Iran. They believe that Iran is the fastest growing church right now in the world. And you know what's happening to the people of Iran as they become Christians? They are developing a love for the people of Israel. And I believe possibly that that is the great nation that God says, I'm going to raise up a great nation out of Ishmael, out of this, the people of Iran. And they also believe that they will be the ones who will be the comforter for Israel in their great time of trouble. It's really interesting kind of stuff as we kind of see how things are kind of shaping up in the world today. Um, I'm not going to try to pinpoint or say exactly where we're at on this time frame of things, but I will say this. We are seeing things in our world today that I believe are uniquely shaping up the end times things. We're seeing the beginnings of things and different uh, things that are coming out that, that are really starting to put a lot of the puzzle pieces really together for us towards the end. Okay, so that's a rabbit trail. Joshua 5 is another Christophany. It's another Christophany. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. <laughs> I love that. No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua worships, and then he's told, this place where you stand is holy ground. The last time that happened was at the burning bush, right, with Moses when he was told the ground that you're standing on is hallowed ground, and he revealed himself to be the great I am. John, in 8, 56 through 58, this is what Jesus says to your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, sometimes people will say, Jesus didn't ever claim to be God. I mean, I'm just, that is the most bold statement of his divinity and that he is God. You see, they would stone you if you said, I am. Jewish people made sure to not even say, I am, 
because that was how God revealed himself to them, the, the I am that I am. You, this is the revelation of who God is. So Jesus, when he's saying I am, he's making a statement, and that statement is divinity, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light. All of these things, these I am statements, and this one for sure, before Abraham was, I am. I'm the preexistent one, the God of the universe. Okay, verse 5. This, we'll get to the message here. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Starts out by saying this. This is the message. This is the message that we're proclaiming to you right now. God is light, and in Him, no darkness at all, right? James echoes this in James 1, right, that, that he's, the, he's the Father of lights, right, that every good and perfect gift comes from Him. Every good and perfect thing that you and I have or experience has its origins. It comes from a good God who loves us and, and who wants to bless us and give favor to us. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him, and he's the, he's the Father of lights, and in Him there is no shadow, there is no variation, there is no shifting. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and His goodness goes on and on and on. And John just begins this thing. He says, this is the message that you need to get a hold of first, is that God is the one who's good, okay? We start with that. It's Him. It's all Him. Everything is Him. It's all Him, and it's all His goodness. And in Him, there is not even a, a shadow of darkness. There's nothing that is dark in Him, zero, nothing. And then he goes on to say, look, if, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, uh, if we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. Uh, he, he starts to kind of lay out this thing that says, you know, actually... Uh, what speaks the loudest is actions. We, we can say whatever we want to say, and a lot of people do. As, as a matter of fact, if you take America and, and you, you get people out there and you say, all right, are you a Christian or not? There was a time in my life where I would have just been like, well, I don't know. I'm not Buddhist. I don't know. I, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian, you know, because I, why? Because I grew up in America. But I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know Christ, you know. So, so just us saying that, that we were a Christian, that, that doesn't make anybody a Christian. Proclaiming Jesus as, as who he is, that's, that's, that's what makes us a Christian and becoming a follower of, Christ, of, of Jesus. You see, Jesus never really laid out a, a prayer for us to say. Now, I'm not against that. I, it's, it's okay. It's an okay starting point. To be honest with you, though, I think, it's, I think that we've done a lot of injustice to the world uh, by just making it into a prayer, by saying just kind of like the church is just being like, well, all you got to do is say this prayer and you're good. That's not, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said, follow me. And he said, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. 
That, that there's an actual thing that if you've had an encounter with the God of the universe, if you've had an encounter with this authentic God that we're talking about, that you're, you're leave, you, you leave there changed. You don't stay the same. And, and if really you're just, you, you say, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a Christian, but everything about your life doesn't reflect, reflects nothing of the, that you're a Christian, then there's a problem there. You, you're on really shaky ground. I'm going to say that, Right? You know, if, if any time, if at times in your life, you, you're, you're having people that you've been around for several months or six months or for a while, and they say something like, I had no clue you were a Christian. You, you might think about that, right? You might be like, wait a minute. You see, it's, it's this idea, walking in the light means, it means understanding. It means seeing. It means that, that we're, we're not walking in the light, it means that we're not lost in the darkness anymore. We're not groping. You see, there, there's a thing that happens in the life of a believer, and it's, it's this. It, it's that we begin to struggle with sin. Now, this is very different from perfection because perfection isn't what we're talking about. When, it starts, when we talk about fellowship and it starts talking about walking in the light, this is not sinless perfection that we're talking about, it, but it is about understanding. And it is about a life and a perspective that has shifted, Right? Before Christ, in my life, especially when I was a young guy, uh, my goal was sin. It, it was, that, that was the destination. That was, that was where I was headed. That was, that was like, I, I, I had no problem with it. I didn't have guilt with sin. I didn't struggle with sin because, because that was my trajectory. That was like what I was after on many levels. But then I became a Christian, and my perspective began to be changed, and God, God changed these things in me. And now, while, while yes, I still sin, I, I, I struggle with sin, right? I, I'm, not, uh, I, I, I'm not perfect. I don't have this figured out. But also, too, I, I don't have the same relationship with it anymore. You see, I, 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 can't, do, I can't sin in peace anymore, there, there's this, this, there's this, you know, it's the, what are you doing? You know, the Holy Spirit is just yelling in your ear, you know, when we do that. And now, and now John is talking about this because, because of the Gnostic belief that like, look, sin doesn't matter. You just sin all you want. You see, part of the Gnostic actions and what, what their belief system did to them was that like, you just sin all you want because it doesn't matter because the material world is already corrupted so, so you can be as corrupt in that realm as you want to be and just don't even worry about it. Because really what matters, the only thing that's important is that you get this secret knowledge. And if you get that, you can, you can behave however you want. And so John is really, he's hitting this and he's dealing with this and he's saying, no, look, look, there needs to be a reflection in your life that you really have a relationship re- to God. It's fellowship and it, it's agreement. Fellowship is like two fellows in a ship going somewhere. We're going in the same direction, right? It's communion. And we have been brought into, if you're a Christian today, see, you've been brought into the Godhead. This idea of fellowship is koinonia, and it means you've been, you've really been, you're seated at the right hand of the Father right now in Christ. This is the reality of where we are. This is, this is the, the, the truth of, of who we are. You've been brought into the, to the communion of the Godhead. And see, if we just said that we have no sin, or we deny sin, we're living in a place called denial, right? Like I've said before, there's no hope there. There's no change in denial because there's no recognition of a need for change in denial. 
We, we, just, we just live in that place. And, and, and you see, this is, this, that's not the, the, the recipe for healing. It says, because verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we have fellowship and we're walking in this light and, and, and we're struggling, there's some lyrics to a song I like by 10th Avenue North, North and it says, um, we're not struggling to be free, we're free to struggle now, right? This is, this is the nature of, of where we are. And, and, and so when we're walking in the light, it's the blood of Christ that is making us righteous. It, it, it's not you, it's not that you're now doing this just right and perfect because you're, you're still not, right? You're, you're still not. We're still, we're still falling short. We're still sinning. We're still in need of Jesus and, and, and our relationship to Him. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See, if we're all walking in the light... and. and and we don't just have fellowship really just because we come to church. We, we have fellowship together because we're walking in the light together. We have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. God certainly isn't deceived by the reality of your sin. He knows it really well. Our sin, I think, is something that we, we don't really have a right reckoning with because we kind of relegate it to the, to the really nasty stuff, right? Like, well, I never did that or, or only once or, you know, whatever. But, but, and then we look at people, we're always creating these hierarchies of, of judgment where like, well, at least I didn't do that and I'm, I'm better than that person and this. And we're always trying to live in that. But, but really what, what Jesus has done is he's created this level playing field, right? where it's just level at the cross. It doesn't matter if you've been good. You haven't been good enough. It doesn't matter if you've been bad. You haven't been so bad that His grace can't still reach you and touch you and transform you and change you. But you see, we've got to come to Him. We've got to acknowledge the reality of our sin. We've got to recognize the bad news before the good news starts to take effect. And that looks like admittance. It looks like just agreeing with. It looks like repenting. It means changing our mind. It's, it's, it's beginning to say, God, you're right. And, and even though I kind of like that sin, I need to get rid of it. It needs to, it needs to leave my life because, because you've done that. And, and, and then the recipe for doing that is, to, is it starts with just admitting, with getting real with our sin, admitting that, yeah, I actually do have, <laughs> that actually is sin. It actually is wrong. And, 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 and when we do that, we... We're not deceiving ourselves anymore. We, we leave denial and we, we enter into reality. And when we enter into reality, now there's hope. Now there's, there's, a, there's a space of healing and hope and change that, that God can actually will work in our lives, not because He doesn't want to, but when we're in denial, we're not allowing Him to work in our lives. We're holding that over to ourselves. We're, we're keeping that sin secret or we're not admitting with it. We're not being real with it. And it says that the truth in that matter isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, then He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? 
all unrighteousness. Is there anything that's off of the table on that deal? Or does all mean all? I think all means all. Any sin that we can commit, that we think of, that we, that, that He's faithful to do this. He's, if we confess our sins, see, there's the next thing, right? Is I, I have to not just admit, I've got to confess it. I've got to get real with it. You see, there's, there's something that happens when it comes out of my mouth sometimes. and There's a reality to that when I hear it, when I hear what the things that I'm speaking, it, it does something. And he's, but He's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. See, and we're going to struggle with sin until we lay this all down here and He removes it for good. One day, that's the great promise. But that promise isn't really for us today. Some Christians do believe that, that, that we can become perfect here on earth, but I, I'm not one of them. Certainly not my experience anyway. Um, I think if you get perfect, you got to go. <laughs> it's time to go. But we're struggling in this thing. You see, but the reality of sin in our lives, the reality that, that, that John is telling us here is like, this is real, and it's real in your life. It's real in your life right here today. And if you would say that that's not the truth, then the truth just isn't in you right now. You're in denial about that. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't fight against sin. You see, we're fighting too today from a place of victory. You see, it's already accomplished. Your, your sins are forgiven if you're in Christ. See, all of your sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross, He's covered them all, even the ones you haven't done yet, even the ones you'll do this afternoon or whatever. They're covered already. It's done. And so we now, we now do life from a place of victory. We're not, we're not trying to attain victory. We, we have victory, but we're working this out in our lives. And this begins by admitting when sin is sin and turning to our advocate who is there to cleanse us, to forgive us of all unrighteousness. This is how we have health and some well-being in our lives is just getting real with the Lord with this, of recognizing that when He calls it sin, it's sin. And remember, there's, there's not just sin of commission. There's not just sins that we've done. There's sins of omission. There's sins of things we ought to have done. There's ethical things about what ought to have happened that we didn't do. And then if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So I don't know how more plain it could be that there just aren't good people, <laughs> right? There's just not good people. We want to believe that we're good, that somehow we're, we're good, and I'm a pretty good guy, and gosh, I've been pretty, but, but if I really get down to it, and I really look into my life, and I... And I, and I see sometimes that shadowy person that's running around in my past, and I can't believe it's me. But it is. But the way out of that, and, and, and the way into something else is to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And we do that by admitting, confessing, being real with this thing, and going to our advocate. And I don't think, I struggle with the concept of self-forgiveness, honestly. I just, I just don't see it. We always talk about forgiving ourselves. I can't forgive myself. Okay, well, I get, you know, I don't know that you're supposed to. I think you need to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers because, see, you need the forgiveness of the one who's been offended. 
right? Like I could, I could run up to Brent right now and I could smack Brent and then I could come back up here and I say, you know what, I forgive me. <laughs> I'm good with it. But what I really need to do is have Brent forgive me because I've been an offense to Brent. Brent would punch me in the nose anyways. But anyway, but I would need to receive his forgiveness. And that's what we have in Christ is that we have this, this pipeline. But, but, but we have to enter into that process. And here's the other thing too. When he forgives you, you got to receive it. You got to receive that. You got to hold on to that. You can't hold on to this thing of I can't forgive myself. It's a false humility. It's a place of saying like, well, I get that forgiveness is available for everybody out here. But for me, oh, and what I've done, it's a false humility. If Jesus has said that he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, then what you and I need to do is receive all of the cleansing that he has for us. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you've done this for us, that you've done this amazing thing, that you've given us a pathway back to wholeness and healing. And it, and it doesn't look like us being good or figuring it all out. It, it looks like us just coming to the one who's our advocate, to you, to our intercessor, the one who's known us, that, that we've existed in your mind even before it was our time came here. And you know, even the number of days that we have, they're all written in your book. And that you paid the penalty for every sin that every Christian would ever commit on the cross. And, and you paid for the sins, not just of us, but for the whole world that you might make available for anyone. Whosoever would call upon your name could, could come and, to, and receive the the wholeness and the healing that you have for us. What we really need, our deepest desire, our deepest need is to just be forgiven. And I'm just praying for each one of us that we would be real with our sin, that we would be real with the reality of sin in the world around us, and that we would be ambassadors to the hope that's within us and that we might offer hope to the world around us, that we wouldn't just attack the world around us or just judge the world, but that we would come for the world the way that you came for us and we would just take on the position of, of, of trying to be rescuers, that we, would, that we would lead people to you and to your goodness, that we would express to people that it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, you could be a new creation, that you could be made anew, and that if you have an encounter with the creator of the universe, that you, you won't be left the same. So, Lord, we just, uh, we're grateful, we're thankful for this day, and we pray just that you would Help us with even those pet sins that we hold on to, that we would, that we would recognize that this really isn't blessing us and that you have, you have goodness for us, that, that in you is all light and all perfection and all goodness and, and the word that you've given us and the, the things you've called us to, to follow, they're, they're for our good and they're for our freedom, they're for our wholeness and our well-being. And so, Lord, we just, uh, we just want to give you the whole of who we are we want to pray that you make us a, a church that, that follows close after you, that, that blesses our community, that blesses those around us, that, that, that is wrapped up in, in discipleship and, and, and seeking to make disciples in this world. And so, Lord, we just, you know where we're at and you know us and 
you know, our, our, our rebellious hearts at times and the things we want to just not even do or, or say. And we're just praying, God, you just rent some of that out of us. Lord, just take it out. Help us, God, to, uh, to walk in accordance to all that you have. Heal us as only you can do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.